Before we jump right into our text, let me tell you a true story so that we can appreciate the text that we're going to look at in this message. There was once a happily married couple that was very thankful to God for bringing them together and for His goodness to them in so many other ways. This was a genuinely godly couple. But there was one deep burden on their hearts. This couple was unable to have any children. Year after year they tried, but to no avail. So finally they gave up hope because they moved well beyond the age of being able to have children. But amazingly, even though she was very advanced in years, the wife conceived and was pregnant with this special child. It was truly miraculous. Like all parents, they had high hopes for their child. They were thrilled with the idea that he would grow up to love and serve the Lord God in some unique way, and he did. He was a strong believer who seemed to be having quite an impact on the people in his country and in his culture. But one day, as a complete shock, he was arrested, thrown into prison, and eventually executed. This son who had so much potential and so much promise was executed as a vile criminal. What an ignoble end. Try to imagine, and I'm sure it's impossible, but try to imagine the hurt and the confusion in the hearts of those parents. Their names were Elizabeth and Zacharias, and their son's name was John. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He was conceived by his parents after they had passed the childbearing age. His conception and birth were divinely announced by an angel. His path was outlined by God. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Zacharias and Elizabeth were in awe of all of this. So it is safe to to assume that they had no idea whatsoever that his life would end the way it did. He was unjustly arrested as a common criminal, thrown into prison, and eventually beheaded. The story is told in Mark chapter 6. Let's turn there together, please, to the second gospel account, Mark's gospel chapter 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 888. It's easy to find in the New Testament. Page 888, Mark chapter 6. Please follow along as I read this story as told in verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, the him being a reference to Jesus, for his name had become well known and He said, King Herod said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. 
He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. He was very perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. What an ignoble end for such a faithful servant of the Lord. It is a powerful reminder to us that the Lord doesn't often reward his servants in this life. We have to wait until the next life for that. I think of a true story I heard a number of years ago. It was about a missionary couple who had served the Lord overseas for many years in very difficult conditions, yet served faithfully, effectively. At the end of their careers, when they could no longer stay on the field, they caught a ship back to the U.S. They took a ship because this was years ago, before the days of air travel or at least before it was common. As their ship pulled into the harbor, there was a large crowd of cheering people waiting on the dock. This missionary couple stood on the bow of the ship, and it brought tears to their eyes to see all these people shouting and cheering at their arrival. They thought they had been forgotten after being away all those years. As the ship docked and they disembarked, They walked down the plank toward the crowd, and that is when they realized that all these people were there to welcome a dignitary who was on board the ship. No one, no one was there to welcome them. It was a striking reminder that the Lord doesn't often reward his servants in this life. We have to wait for the next life for that. The same thing was true for John the Baptist. According to Jesus, John was one of the greatest men who has ever lived. Yet John was treated like a wicked criminal 
whose life was worth nothing more than what it could bring in the inner workings of the political scene of his day. If his parents were still alive when this happened, and by God's grace they probably weren't because they were elderly when they had him, but if they were still alive when this happened, it would have been heartbreaking. But life isn't fair. We have to wait for eternity for the scales to be balanced. Let's consider this moving story together as Mark tells it here at this point in his gospel record. We read in verse 14, Now King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus. We're sort of jumping into the flow of the story here, the sixth chapter. King Herod heard about Jesus, for his name had become well known. And King Herod said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. A little bit of background. The Herod who is mentioned here in this verse is not Herod the Great, the man who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem after Jesus' birth. This was Herod Antipas, who was ruler of Galilee. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided and given to his sons. One of them was this man, Herod Antipas, who was given the responsibility of governing Galilee up north and Perea in the southeast. Because he was one of several rulers, unlike his dad, Herod the Great, who ruled it all, because he was one of several, he was called a tetrarch. By the way, this was the same Herod who questioned Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. You remember that? Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. That's the same guy as in this story. All of the sons of Herod the Great took after the wickedness of their father in various ways, and this son was no different, as we see in this story. They all had one main goal in life, and that was to protect their power. That's why this Herod was concerned when he heard about the growing popularity of this man named Jesus. He had heard about this miracle worker who was spending a lot of time in Galilee, which was his region to govern. This concerned him. This concerned him because he didn't want anyone stirring up the people and gathering a following and having large crowds of people stirred up. This was a threat to him. So when he heard about this miracle worker of Galilee, he drew a conclusion about his identity. He assumed this was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now that doesn't make sense, but you need to understand <clears throat> that he was so paranoid about having someone else have, having any kind of power or influence that he wasn't even able to think rationally. He assumed John the Baptist had risen from the dead. Other people in society had other ideas about Jesus. Verse 15 says, Others said, No, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, a reference to Deuteronomy 18, or like one of the prophets. You see, many of the people in the first century didn't really know what to do with Jesus or how to view him. They knew there was something unique about him. So the common view, or one of the common views, was that he was some kind of prophet. But Herod, that's not where he went in his thinking. He was convinced it was John. Verse 16, but when Herod heard, 
He said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. In one sense, it's no surprise that Herod thought this because he knew in his heart of hearts that he had done a great injustice when he had had John executed. So it seems that his conscience was rightly torturing him. Now at this point in the flow of Mark's gospel, Mark pauses to tell us the story of what happened. You need to understand that the murder of John did not happen at this point in Jesus' ministry. The murder of John had taken place prior to this time, but Mark hadn't recorded it when it occurred in the chronology. Therefore, he pauses and recounts it at this stage of his gospel record. So basically, verses 17 through 29 are actually a parenthesis in the flow of the unfolding story of Jesus' life and ministry. It's a parenthesis, but it's a very important parenthesis. I mean, we're talking about the death of the forerunner of the Messiah. John was no ordinary man. Do you remember what Jesus said about him back in Matthew 11? Go back there with me for just a moment to the gospel account just prior to this one. And notice in Matthew 11, and by the way, when we turn to Matthew 11, this, this statement or these statements by Jesus occurred when John was in prison prior to his beheading. So this takes us back to even prior to the beheading of John. And John was in prison. And we pick it up in verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Let's stop there for just a moment. As you know, if you've read the gospel accounts, John attracted quite a bit of attention. He was in some ways an unusual sort of fellow. For one thing, he carried out his ministry way out in the wilderness. You would think you would carry it out, you know, around people in the city or in suburbs or something. Not John. He's way out in the wilderness. Secondly, his message was a fiery message of repentance, not a popular theme. Thirdly, his dress was a little strange in that he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Fourthly, his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Fifthly, he dunked people in water. So even though he's way out in the wilderness, many people flocked to see him and to hear him. He was a novelty. He was of interest to people. Now that doesn't mean that all those people heeded his message but many were intrigued by this unusual man. So that's why Jesus asked this question here in verse 7. In essence, he was saying, what motivated you to go out to see John? Why did you do it? What were you expecting when you went out there? The last phrase here in this verse, a reed shaken by the wind, was a description of someone who was uncertain, someone who was vacillating and shifting and wavering in his convictions. It describes a fickle person who could be swayed by public opinion. That certainly wasn't John. He was uncompromising in his message and his ministry. And so in verse 8, John says, But what did you go out to, I mean, Jesus says of John, What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. In other words, 
John wasn't a member of the aristocracy. He dressed in camel's hair, not royal apparel. He wasn't part of the nobility. He wasn't among the movers and shakers of society. Yet he was, in the Lord's estimation, a great man. And that's what really matters, isn't it? It's not the world's estimation of us. It's not the world's appraisal of us that really matters. It's the Lord's. From a human standpoint, John looked completely irrelevant. He looked inconsequential at this point in time. He's sitting in prison, alone, in the desert. The world disregarded him. But here on this occasion, the Lord highly affirmed him. Jesus says of him in verse 9, But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Was John a prophet? Yes, he was. He was the last and final culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. But as Jesus says here, he was more than a prophet. He was unique in his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus said all of these things to emphasize that the people's estimation of John and understanding of John was far less than it should have been. John was far greater of a man than most realized. He was more than a prophet. He was the forerunner of the king. He was the one who was sent by God to prepare the way for the king. And so in verse 10, Matthew quotes this, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a quote from Malachi 3.1. And it describes a common scenario in ancient times. A monarch traveling in wilderness regions would have a crew of workmen go ahead to make sure that the road was clear of debris, obstructions, potholes, and other hazards that made the journey difficult. That's what John was to do in a spiritual sense. He was to clear the path of obstacles, get people's hearts right, get people to repent, get them to be baptized to show that they were repentant and were ready to receive the king. He was the king's messenger and forerunner, and he faithfully fulfilled his task. And that's why Jesus added the next statement, verse 11, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, John was the greatest man to have lived up until this time. That is a staggering statement when you think about men like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. John was even greater. Verse 12 and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see, during the Old Testament era, there were prophets proclaiming God's message. In addition, as Jesus says here, the law of God stood as God's message to the people. And all of, the, all of that looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come and bring in his kingdom. So when John the Baptist came preaching, he initiated the events that would usher the king onto the scene. He was the one to prepare the way. He was the forerunner. And in verse 14, 
Jesus says, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. In other words, John was the prophet who fulfilled Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, because Luke 1, 17 says so, and Jesus says so here. Jesus came, I mean, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't actually Elijah returning in the flesh. We're not talking reincarnation. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And his role was so important that Jesus ends this section with a statement to emphasize how significant it is that we understand John's role. Look at the last verse in this section, verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you've read much of the Bible, then you know that our Lord used this very phrase to call attention to something that was and is very important. The fact that he uses this phrase here ought to show us that he considers it extremely important that we understand what he said in these verses about John. He considers it extremely important that we understand how significant John's role was and what a great man he was. That's why the circumstances of his death are so important. Now back to the story in Mark chapter 6. Back over to the next gospel account, chapter 6. So in verse 17, Mark begins to tell the story. Verse 17, Mark chapter 6. Mark says this, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Now understand what's going on here. The word for at the beginning of this verse shows us that Mark is backing up to give us the account of John's death as sort of a flashback. It's sort of like if you're watching a movie and the movie's going along and all of a sudden it pauses and there's this flashback so that you can understand something that happened prior to give you the full effect of what's happening in the present. So this is a flashback. As Mark goes back to tell what happened, which he had not recorded earlier in his gospel, when it did happen. From a human standpoint, the events that led up to John's death were truly tragic. As Mark tells us here in this verse, John was arrested for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now this is where the story gets really complicated and convoluted. So let me see if I can explain it in a way that doesn't confuse it even more. Stay tuned in here. Stay tracking with me here. Herod the Great was the king over all the region of Israel when Jesus was born. Almost everyone has heard of Herod the Great because at Christmas time we all hear about the stories of the babies who were slaughtered in Bethlehem, etc. That was Herod the Great. In all, he had seven sons by five different wives. As I mentioned earlier, four of his sons were given parts of his kingdom to rule after his death. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, who is the main character in this story, was one of those sons. So Herod Antipas had six brothers, or you could say to be technically accurate, six half-brothers. One of those brothers was named Aristobulus. 
Aristobulus had a daughter and named her Herodias, as is mentioned here in verse 17. She ended up marrying one of these seven sons of Herod the Great, which meant she ended up marrying her own uncle, one of her uncles. She married Herod Philip I, which meant it was an incestuous marriage. However, to compound the problem, Herod Antipas, the main guy in this story, talked her into leaving her husband, his brother, to marry him. This further spread the incest, and it also violated Leviticus 18.16, which says, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. So this whole situation was nothing but a mess, a sinful mess. And to think that all of this was going on in the lives of rulers in the land of Israel, God's chosen land. One might expect this kind of thing to go on in Rome. I mean, who knows what went on in Rome? Everything went on in Rome, where the people were were completely pagan. But this was going on in the midst of a land that was supposed to be, and a people who were supposed to be, reflecting the glory of God to the pagan nations of the world. Therefore, John the Baptist was incensed with the whole situation, and he spoke out against it. Verse 18, Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this wasn't against Roman law, but it was against the law of God for the people of Israel, the law God gave through Moses, and it was against the the law that God had in place in Israel, which is where all this was taking place. It's not surprising that John spoke out against this, because as we saw earlier in Matthew 11, Jesus said he was no reed shaken by the wind. In other words, he was not a weak, timid, mild vacillating kind of man. That wasn't John. He was bold. He was outspoken. He was uncompromising. Thus, when all of this unfolded in the lives of the rulers of Israel, God's chosen land, John spoke out against it. Now, we don't know if he had the opportunity to speak to Herod directly, but if he did have that opportunity, there's no question he took it. So this rebuke may have been in private, if possible, But if not, then John spoke out against it publicly. That's what got John arrested. But amazingly, there was more to this sordid story. Because we are told in verse 19, Therefore Herodias, this is the one, remember, who used to be married to Herod Antipas' brother, now married to him. Therefore Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not. What a sickening statement. There's no sense of right and wrong, no sense of justice. The whole situation was simply a pragmatic one to Herodias. She wanted to kill John for rebuking this immorality, but the only reason she didn't was because Herod, Antipas, her husband, her new husband, was afraid of the repercussions from the general population which considered John to be a prophet. 
Verse 20 says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. So now you're understanding the story. Herodias wanted John dead, but Herod was afraid to carry it out, so he kept John as a prisoner, maybe for as long as a year. We know where this prison was located, over on the east side of the Jordan River, Macaris, it's called. It's in a desolate, hot, barren desert place. John was perplexing to Herod, which resulted in great internal conflict. Herod liked to listen to him talk. He was intrigued, but he wasn't inclined to follow what John said. So John was simply held as a prisoner for, as I said, maybe as long as a year until something happened that changed everything. Verse 21 tells us what that was. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. This daughter was named Salome. We know that from history. And she was the daughter of Herodias and Philip, the first husband of Herodias. This dance that she performed was a solo dance with highly suggestive hand and body movements. It was unusual and almost unprecedented that Salome would have performed in this way before Herod's guests. And that probably indicates that her mother, Herodias, was behind it. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that Herod was so enamored with her and the dance that he made a foolish promise. Verse 23, he also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. That was a common statement of exaggeration used in the Middle East to make the point that the person could ask for just about anything. If you go back to the book of Esther, you'll see that same phrase as a common expression. Ask whatever up to half of my kingdom. It was a way of saying virtually nothing is out of bounds. Just ask. So she didn't hesitate to make a bizarre request. Verse 24 says, So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This was a murderous, scheming family that didn't like to be questioned or opposed in any way. So when John spoke against this marriage, Herodias filed that away in her mind, and she just waited for the opportunity to get him. This was her opportunity. Verse 26 tells us, The king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. What a twisted series of events. 
if you didn't, if you didn't believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God, this could really make you doubt. Even when you do believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God, this kind of thing makes you sick. John the Baptist, the forerunner of King Jesus, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, beheaded because of Herod's stupid promise prompted by his immorality and lust. So verse 27 tells us, Immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. The finality of that statement gives you an empty feeling inside. With just a simple wave of his hand, Herod Antipas ended the life of one of God's choicest servants. And if that wasn't bad enough, insult was added to injury by humiliating his memory in the act of actually bringing his head to the sleazy girl who had done the provocative dance to lure Herod into her wishes. Verse 28 tells us, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. The first century Jezebel got her way. She wanted to get rid of John from the moment he began to speak against her actions of leaving her husband and marrying this man who had no business seducing her away from her first husband. And now she got her wish. She didn't merely want John dead. Mark it well. No, she wanted him and his memory humiliated. She could have simply had her daughter request to have John executed. You know, kill him. Go bury him somewhere. But that wasn't enough for her. She wanted his head on a platter. She specifically wanted John beheaded. Why? This mode of death was looked upon by the Jews as the most disgraceful way to die. The Talmud tells us this and says that this punishment, beheading, was used in the case of someone who misled the people into worshiping false gods. So when Herodias had John beheaded, it was a strong political statement, a strong religious statement. Can you imagine any woman wanting anyone's head on a platter? Really? You know any women like that? I'm glad I don't. Can you imagine the intensity of the hatred and anger that would drive a woman to make such a request? She wanted to make a shocking point to the people of her husband's jurisdiction about anyone who would dare speak against her and her choices. This was one vile and wicked woman. At that point in history, she really looked like she was in charge. She looked like she was the, the top dog and the one with which to be reckoned. She, she looked like she had it all. No one could question her and get away with it. No one could oppose her. She had the world by the tail. But let me tell you something. It's not that way right now. Back then, in the eyes of the world, John looked like the humiliated one, and she looked like the powerful one, the exalted one. But it's not that way as I speak to you right now.
unless she repented of her sin and rebellion against God, and we have no evidence in history that she did, then she went to a place of fiery judgment at death, and John went to a place to hear the words, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Death has a way of righting the wrongs of this world. And so Mark closes out his account, his description of this, in verse 29 by saying, When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. You can just feel the sadness oozing from that scene. These men who loved John and had been ministered to by John and impacted by John had the sad task of retrieving his headless body for burial. I'm sure their hearts were heavy with grief at the ignoble end of this one who had faithfully fulfilled his assignment from his God. He was to prepare the way for the Lord. And he did that. It's exactly what he did. Once his task was complete, our sovereign and perplexing God allowed his final months to be spent in a desert prison. And then one day, think about this, without him being aware of the sordid events that prompted it in the palace above, some soldiers came to his cell and chopped off his head with a sword. But that's not really the end of the story. Because as I said a moment ago, the last chapter of the story took place when Herodias died and when Herod Antipas died and when Salome died. From a human standpoint, John's life ended prematurely. It certainly ended unjustly. But Herod's life went on. You can read about them in history, Roman history. Herodias' life went on. Salome's life went on. It was the grace and mercy of God to give them time to repent of their sins and to surrender their lives to the Lord, but we have no evidence or indication from history that they ever did. God graciously allowed their paths to cross with his servant John so that his life could be a source of conviction in their lives, but they extinguished the light and just simply moved on. And let me tell you something. Now, they wish they would have listened. Now, they wish they would have paid closer attention. Now, they wish they would have heeded God's message through his servant. But nothing can soothe their regrets. Nothing. That's the way it is once you enter eternity apart from God. Nothing, nothing can soothe your regret. Don't wait until it's too late. I urge you. I beg with you. I beg you. I plead with you. Don't wait until it's too late. Please bow your head with me as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes, reflecting on this story that we've considered this morning from God's Word. First of all, I would say this. If you are a child of God, this is, 
a much needed reminder that life isn't fair and that this life doesn't sort out all the rights and wrongs. This life doesn't balance the scales. Oh, sometimes God in his sovereignty and his providence has it that way, but not usually. You have to wait until the next life. So let me encourage you, child of God, to, to refocus. Not on this life, but on eternity. And realize you have to wait until eternity for all the wrongs to be righted and the scales to be balanced. This, this story really has a, if we'll allow it, has a great way to refocus our perspective. And then I would say this. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, you've not, you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then I warn you. I warn you by pointing you to the example of Herod Antipas, his unlawful wife, Herodias, her daughter, Salome, I warn you, don't wait. Don't wait and find that nothing can soothe your regret. Surrender your life to Christ. Turn to him in repentance, childlike faith, and trust him with your life and your eternal destiny. Father, as we close our time together this morning and close our look at this story. May you at least, at least impress those two truths on us. And maybe there are others that you've spoken to our hearts about, but at least those two truths that this life isn't fair and only eternity will sort out all of those things. And secondly, maybe most importantly, that it is tragic beyond words to wait until it's too late. And so, Father, we pray for those of us who know you and your Son, who can truly call you our Father. We pray that you would recalibrate our focus and our perspective with eternity in view, remembering that that's when the scales will be balanced and the wrongs will be righted. And Father, in closing, we pray for those hearing these words right now who are not ready for death, not ready for eternity. May your Holy Spirit really bring conviction and understanding to their hearts and minds that they would see their need for the Savior and that they would embrace Jesus Christ in this life before it's too late. We pray all of these things in his precious and magnificent name. Amen.